If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of John. This morning we're just going to look at one verse. You may not even need your Bibles open as I read it. As I begin to read it, you will say it in your head. It is so familiar to so many of us. We have come to the place in the Gospel of John where we are at John 3.16. But I want to remind you that this verse, like every other verse in God's Word, is the inspired Word of God. And as you hear it, I would ask you to listen and understand that it is completely inerrant, completely sufficient, and completely authoritative. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon us. Lord, we ask this morning that You would open up Your word to us, that as we hear this verse that we know so well, we would not just hear in it our need, that we would not just hear in it your provision for our need, but that in it, Lord, we would hear more about who you are, of your character, of your majesty and your greatness. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. So we come this morning to perhaps the most familiar verse in all of the Bible. John 3.16 is, comparatively to every other verse, it's everywhere. It's the verse that is held up at football games. It's the verse that appears in tracts that people hand out. It's the verse that people use as they speak to others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther called this verse the Bible in miniature. And it is. Because the Bible and all of it is in the Bible is God's revelation to us of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners and bring them into fellowship with God. And so we come now this morning to this text. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had the experience of seeing something familiar in a new light? Like when you take a friend to a place that has become sort of ho-hum for you, but it's marvelous to them. It reminds you of what you loved so much about that place in the first instance, before you began to take it for granted and it became old. Maybe your experience is like mine. I grew up not very far at all from the Niagara Falls. And I could go to Niagara Falls any time that I wanted, which usually meant that I didn't go. Because it was every day where I was. It was just a place that you could go and visit, and there was traffic, and there was parking, and why would you bother to go there? I easily forgot it is one of the great wonders of the world. When I did go, 
It was a place that was just like any other place. It stole the majesty of the place. But there were occasions when we would have friends or relatives come from far away to visit us, and they would always want us to take them to the falls. And when we got there, it became clear what I was taking for granted. They were in awe of the wonder of the falls. And through their eyes, I was reminded of how beautiful a place it was. Lord willing, we will have that experience this morning as we look at perhaps the best known but often unappreciated text in the Bible. Lord willing, we will see four things from this vital text. First, the giver of love. Second, the object of love. Third, the provision of love. And finally, the blessing of love. Well, as we begin to look at this well-known text, we need to remember its context. This is how we will begin to see the giver of love. John 3.16 does not exist by itself as some sort of philosophical saying or proverb. It comes right in the middle of a discussion that Jesus is having with the teacher of Israel... Nicodemus, about the nature of regeneration. This, as an aside, is why I am drawn and we are committed to the consecutive exposition of books of the Bible in our preaching. Because we're not coming to this in a vacuum. You all know where we have been and where this is in a part of the larger conversation. Jesus has been telling Nicodemus what regeneration is. That it's an act where God, the Holy Spirit, is the initiator. The Spirit, Jesus says, blows where He wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, Christ is telling us that God is the initiator in regeneration. That's why... Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is the work of God. And then Jesus, shortly after that, gives us another example of this God-initiated relationship. He describes God's provision to the Israelites in the wilderness of the bronze serpent. Jesus says that his coming is like the coming of that serpent, just as God came to Israel with the bronze serpent, before Israel even knew what they needed, before they had any idea of how they could be saved, so indeed Christ comes. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is important for us as we come to our text, because it is all too common to begin in John 3.16 with us, with the whosoever. But that's not where the Bible begins. The Bible here begins just as it began in Genesis chapter 1 with God. The verse opens, For God so loved the world. 
John has already set the stage for this verse by showing the complete inability of man. He has compared man to a child being born again. Again, this is something that is so familiar to our ears that it can pass without notice. We casually talk about being born again as if it were some technical term. Something that should be obvious to everyone. But that is exactly what it is not. If we're honest with ourselves, we would be more like Nicodemus when we hear these words of Christ. And we would say, how can these things be? The truth is that unless God breaks in, unless God so loves, that's the end of the story. But the story is just beginning. John shifts us immediately from the context of man's inability to God's action. God is the initiator in this relationship. It is God who so loves the world, not the other way around. This is amazing if we stop to think about it. God, who is perfect and complete in himself. God who needs nothing. God who has dwelt in perfect love for all eternity. He condescends to love. But it's not just that God takes the initiative in loving those who are incapable of love. No, we know from the Apostle Paul that God loves those who are his enemies. We are not just incapable of loving God. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God is the initiator, and he initiates with those who are incapable of love and who are actually his enemies. But there's also the matter of the nature of God's love. The text says, for God so loved. It's not just that God loves. He loves in so great a manner. There are two things that can be learned from this adverb, so, and I think often we stop at the first. First, we see that God's love is great. It is such a love, so great a love, so loving. But really, the adverb here has another sense. It means in such a manner or after such a manner. God's love has a certain character to it. It causes him to act. God's love is not a mere pining or sentimentality. It's not simply emotion. No, God's love overflows into concrete action. His love is demonstrated by the giving of his son. This is real love. We see the difference in love in this fashion, even in human relationships, don't we? It's easy for us to distinguish between the so great love of a husband and a wife and the love of acquaintances. In the former case, love brings about concrete actions, sacrifices for each other. True love is shown 
by the bearing of costs. This is the love that God brings. The second thing I'd like us to see today is that God's love has an object. We've seen that God initiates love and that His love is great, but God's act of love is fixed on an object. Our text tells us that the object of God's love is the world. For God so loved the world. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean the entire world? Does it mean every person who's living now or who has ever lived without exception and without distinction? Well, I think the text here and its context shows us that it indicates God's love for His people. We see from the immediate context that the world here cannot mean the entire world. Now, why do I say this? Because in the very next sentence, John says in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. If we take the word world in verse 16 to mean every single person without exception or distinction, then our Lord would appear to be teaching universalism in verse 17. That is, that everyone will be saved. Now, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not even what Jesus teaches here in verse 16. That there is a distinction between perishing and having eternal life. And it doesn't make any sense to take the same word, two sentences together, in completely different fashions. No, that means that we must understand the use of the word world in 3.16 by the limits of verse 17. And this makes even more sense if we take our text in the context of the teaching of the rest of Scripture. In our passage... Jesus is teaching to a leading teacher of Judaism who previously missed the entire point of the Old Testament. Remember that it is God who is the initiator. It is the Spirit who blows where He wills. Jesus is not speaking to someone who is unfamiliar with the concept of God's love. He's just speaking to someone who's unfamiliar with the extent of of God's love. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, thought that God's love was limited to the physical children of Abraham. John highlights this for us later in this gospel when he recounts in chapter 8 how they try to correct Jesus' teaching on the forgiveness of sins because they say that they don't need the forgiveness of sins because they are the children of Abraham. And on that matter alone, they are acceptable in God's sight. Their hope was not in God, but in their parentage. That's what Christ is seeking to correct here in Nicodemus. He's pointing out that salvation is for all kinds of people. That salvation is for all in the world, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is important for you and for me, because unless that is true then we could not be saved. We who are not physical descendants of Abraham. 
But Paul tells us that we are indeed children of Abraham by faith. And so if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And you are a child of Abraham and a child of God. And it doesn't matter whether you were born in China or in Africa or in Egypt or in America or in Japan. God so loved the world, not just one people, that he is calling out his people from all throughout the world. John says much the same thing in his first letter, the second chapter, when he says that Christ is the propitiation, that is the atonement, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The implication here is that Jesus knows we already stand condemned and in need of love and the provision of God. All sorts of people, no matter what they think they can boast in, are the objects of God's love. That is because God knows our need better than we know it ourselves. And that is true for all of us. For there is a danger that we might place our hope and our trust in something other than God. And as a result, minimize our need. Our sin, if you think of it, is like a tree. Even if we think we know the extent of our sin and have seen it in all of its ugliness, it's only like the tree branches that are seen above the ground. Our sin is actually much greater than we realize. You know how the roots of a tree, hidden, unseen, are as large as the entire tree above the ground. That's what our sin is like. God knows all of our sin. And yet, <coughs> He places His love on us. There is one more thing that shows us that God's love is specific and purposeful, not general and vague. It is directed to those who believe. God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him should not perish. There is a purpose behind God's love. We can take comfort from the fact that God directs His love toward us and does so even though we did not first love him. And even though we are not lovely. But God does require something of us. Belief. We cannot fool ourselves into thinking that we do not need to rest upon Jesus Christ. But again, let's not forget the bigger picture here. The objects of God's love are those who believe in Him, but the broader point of John 3 is that we must be born again and we are incapable of believing in Him. That's why God is the initiator. We dare not imitate the Jews and trust in something other than God, even if what that something is, is our believing in God. Your faith is not something that you bring to God in exchange for salvation. Your faith is not a work of yourself that makes you worthy. Because the moment we think that, we come to understand and believe that we can be saved because of who we are. 
and what we have done and how we are better than others. And that is against the teaching of all of the scripture. That God makes his people his own by giving them faith. It's the spirit that gives birth, Jesus says. And as Paul says, it is God who gives faith as a gift to the believer. That is a part of his making his people the specific objects of his love. We've seen the giver of love and the object of love. Now let's turn thirdly to the provision of love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What a marvelous statement. In one sense, it is impossible to plumb the depths of this summary of the gospel. But we could take note of three things about God's provision of love in John 3.16. First, God's provision is sacrificial. God's loving response to those who stand condemned and in need is to give. And as we saw earlier, God acts because of his love. How unusual is that today? So often the world thinks of love as simply a feeling. But God shows you true love. It is sacrifice. It is thinking more about the one you love than about yourself. But notice that God gives his best for his people. Think about that. Often we think of giving in terms of things that are no longer useful for us or things that we don't need. When we are preparing to give away clothes, for example, to the Goodwill or the Salvation Army, we go into our closets and we look and we find things that are no longer in fashion. Or maybe sport coats that are a little shiny in the elbows because they're a little worn out, but they're still useful. Or shoes that don't fit us quite right anymore. And we say to ourselves, well, I don't use these. I don't wear these. Someone can make good use of them. And they can, and that's good. But have you ever thought about going into your closet and finding dresses or shirts or suits with the tags still on them? Brand new. And giving those away? You see, we don't think about giving that way. But that's how God gives. God doesn't give us leftovers. He doesn't give us also-rans. His sacrifice is the highest cost to him. The cost of God's love was his son. That brings us to the second thing that we can understand about God's provision. And that is that his provision is not stingy. He has given us his only begotten son, his beloved son. God did not try to figure out what would be the least he could give. God was not satisfied with simply making his people's suffering more bearable. No. God determined to save to the uttermost, Hebrews reminds us. And if God has been so lavish with us, how dare we be stingy with him? How dare we give him our lame offerings or our leftover affection? How dare we worship with half a heart 
or with an eye on the clock. But there's more than that. If God has been so lavish with us, how dare we be stingy with each other? God has given His best for each in the church. There is no excuse for the people of God to be stingy with each other. As this same apostle wrote, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. We must show love to each other in concrete, sacrificial ways. The third thing we notice about the provision of God's love is that God's provision is sufficient. God has given all that is necessary. He does not need us to fill in the gaps. He does not need us to meet Him halfway. He gives His Son to be our propitiation. And even the requirement of belief He gives to us. He doesn't need us to do our part. Imagine, if you will, Habitat for Humanity coming up with a new plan for helping the homeless. Their plan is to bring lumber, nails, and the rest of the building materials and to drop it in the yard of a homeless person and then leave. They don't actually stay behind to build a house. They don't even give any directions. Now, is that help? We would say that that help might actually be cruel in a sense. For it would highlight the need of the person, but it would not sufficiently answer the need. How could someone build a house by himself? But not so with our God. His provision in Jesus Christ is perfect and complete. There is nothing else needed, no other work. We merely receive the gift of God with the open hand of faith. What a great blessing that is. This is why only biblical Christianity can be true. Because it is only in the Bible that we understand and read that we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, lost, condemned. And that God, who is rich in mercy, sends His Son to complete all the work that is necessary to pay completely our debt, that we might be forgiven, adopted, and righteous. We need do nothing. God's provision is perfect and completely satisfying. Well, We've seen God as the giver of love. Who sets his love upon his people as the objects of his love. In such a way that he has provided for their desperate need. Even at the inexpressible cost of his only begotten son. Now let's look finally at the blessing of such unbelievable love. God pays the price so that you do not have to pay. The gift is to the end that you should not perish. John is emphatic here. 
The intention of God is that you should not perish, but that you would have eternal life. He repeats this in verse 15 and 16. His promise is to the intent that his people would come to repentance. And God's love is such that it frees us from the condemnation of our sin and the shame of our sin. But more than that, God's love not only protects us, but it brings us blessing. The blessing of God's love is more than protection from death and hell. No. God's love brings us everlasting life. That's why John includes this final clause of great comfort to us, that not only will we not perish, but we will have everlasting life. Eternal life. It's important that we hear the message that John has for us. This text is a very familiar text. And sometimes that can cause us to be lazy in hearing. God has sent His Son. The greatest gift that He could possibly give. That sinful men and women might be saved from death and delivered from condemnation to eternal life. We dare not be casual with such a gift. We dare not reject such a gift. If today you are not in Christ, God is calling you now, this very day, through this text, through this preacher, to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is a great promise, but there is also an implied reality. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish. And you will not have everlasting life. Trust in Jesus now. And for the believer, there are no other words as sweet as these. God has loved you so much that He gave His Son for you. What a great and glorious God we serve. The one who helps the helpless, who finds the lost, who saves the condemned. All through His own work, the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is the gospel in miniature. Let's pray.